This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Warren Mansell, welcome back to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. So great to talk to you again. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Great. Yeah. Well, of course, we've got this really um, um, sprawling and wonderful, um, rich handbook of uh, perceptual control theory that has really um, opened my eyes, even as someone who is already you know, very much on board with the theory and using it in my own work. Um, uh, this isn't just about going even wider in a sense, in terms of all the disciplines in which it's having an impact, but going deeper as well. There's a tons of new insights and, and ways that the contributors are not only, you know, quote unquote, applying, uh, the foundations of PCT to their work, uh, or in their area, but that what their work is doing is deepening the theory itself, which is super exciting. So, mm. um, of course we normally begin with a biographical sketch, but since you've been a guest on this uh, um, before, we'll we'll, uh, ask folks to turn to our previous interview, unless there's any biographical update you wish to give us before we jump into the book, because there's so many things we want to talk about, but I'll give you an opportunity if there's anything else you want to say. No, no, let's go for it. Since the last time our listeners met you. Okay. So we're just going to, because it's a big book and it's really an edited volume of chapters, we're going to go through this in a a format that Warren and I have uh, agreed upon ahead of time, which is... um, which is really uh, just sort of chapter by chapter and getting a few thoughts from Warren on on the author, what drew Warren as the editor of this volume to uh, to uh, invite that person in and and what particular um, contributions we, we should be paying attention to. So I guess though we should start with Bill Powers, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. the very first chapter, the founder of the of the field, so to speak. Um, Anything you want to say about uh, about about Bill and the, and the beginnings? Uh, well, of course. I mean, the the book was was Bill's idea. Um, sadly, he passed away in in two thousand and thirteen, um, and he talked to his sister Alice Powers, who uh, ran Benchmark Publications, and had told her that his his wish was to get the groups of academics and practitioners that he'd been working with and communicating with over so many years, often decades, and produce an edited book that um, really showed the world what perceptual control theory um, could offer. Um, And so he set out um, a list of the people that he wanted to contribute. And I worked with Alice to um, liaise with those authors and I also um, invited some more authors. Some others couldn't make it. So it, it changed a little bit from, from Bill's original um, um, 
uh, layout, but the aim of it is is the same to really show what PCT adds to each of these fields. And there's so many different disciplines represented in the field. It was a real honor to to work with so many different professions. That's great. And as I've said, and I think always the most important thing, and I always think of uh, the cybernetician Ross Ashby talking about uh, Ross Ashby talking about the ways that those fields then feed back into the original theory as well, and they mutually develop each other, which is beautiful. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting though. We'll probably come back to that, but there's there's elements of PCT that are kind of fundamental, and there's elements that um, are are about how the how PCT, given the fundamentals of PCT, how interactions between people, for example, um, evolve and can be characterized and described in certain ways, um, how the neural machinery implements it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, I think it's safe to say that the central tenets of PCT, of control, conflict and reorganization and the hierarchical organization are untouched and unmodified by this book. But mm-hmm. there's a lot said about how that manifests itself, what implications it has um, in all kinds of disciplines. Yeah, you're right. I thank you for that important clarification. I think that's that's absolutely the case. I, I guess the kind of thing I was thinking about in particular, and we'll get to it in, in a bit, I was thinking a lot about, um, about um, the, uh, Kent McClellan's work mm-hmm. uh, and how uh, his whole how the like you say that the unchanged foundations of pct alter the way one even views even the built environment mm-hmm. as as a as a as a as a network of feedback pathways mm. so that that's the kind of thing yeah. i'm thinking about where there's a, an entirely novel way of of thinking about something that came from from as you say these still um these still uh, untouched um uh, and un, unadapted cent, uh, central concepts of the theory yeah Great. So um, first, let's talk about a buddy of ours, Rick Markin, Richard S. Markin, who's also been mm-hmm. on this podcast a couple of times, actually. Uh, and he's talking in his chapter about understanding purposeful systems, the application of control theory in engineering and psychology. Yeah. So tell me what brought you to uh, turn to our friend Rick for this particular contribution. Well, it was really suitable to start the book with some of the strongest and almost purest advocates of, of PCT. And that's why it starts with Rick's, um, Richard Kenaway's uh, and Henry's chapters who really articulate the importance of, of PCT itself for, for science, for methodology. Um, and Rick's chapter uh, was designed to really pull out the... Um, importance of what what he describes as a reverse engineering perspective that sexual control theory provides um, its purpose instead of building machines is really to try and understand how living things work by trying to understand what they're controlling and using precise tests to establish this um, and it's kind of his chapter, and he's written about this in many other times, also reveals how the sort of classic engineering theory, whilst its um, organization is very analogous to PCT1, there's some critical differences, one being that, or the most critical being, that the, the comparator in, in classic theory is put outside the system. Um, 
with the reference point, whereas within uh, PCT, it's acknowledged that the reference point, the goal, is inside the system itself. It sets mm-hmm. its own goals. Um, so unlike a thermostat where the user sets the temperature, um, our bodies set their own temperature in a, in a very mundane example there. And, and whilst actually if you talk to any engineer about this in detail, they fully admit that living things have internal goals and yet continue in the convention to, to show the, the goal outside the organism. Um, and it's, it, it's sometimes kind of ignored and thought to be, well, that's just a convention. It doesn't have implications. But actually, the implications are absolutely huge in terms of mm. where that uh, control system, how that control system can be understood in any further detail for example in building a hierarchy it's based upon the idea that that reference point that goal is set internally by a level up within the organism itself so it opens the way within pct to build a system of far more complexity um, than you would have in a you know in a, in a simple unit i've already gone mm-hmm. on, on a bit further than what is in rick's chapter but um he he has been the by far the strongest experimentalist within sexual control theory. And that's another reason why um, he's got this first chapter leading the way in the handbook. That's great. Thank you. And that, yeah, that's really important, that distinction that the internal, the goal inside the organization or inside the system, the organism is what allows the building of the hierarchy itself. That's a really, um, really important distinction. Thank you for uh, for drawing that for us. Um, Let's move to another person who, has much to say about that that particular flaw in uh, mm. in in, yeah. in in the model uh, of most control theory uh, and other things he has to say as well. Uh, and Henry Yin with his um, his chapter on the crisis in neuroscience. Yeah, and Henry's writing is is impeccable, and it's all the more impressive that he came to sexual control theory um, fairly recently compared to most of the other authors, but. The, the depth at which he uh, he describes it and the clarity is is really impressive and because he's so well um, knowledge um, well well versed in neuroscience research both its you know its strengths and its flaws in this chapter he's been able to describe some classic examples of uh, research in neuroscience and sh- and kind of exposed if you like, the vulnerabilities of that research because um, it's been assumed that the observer's perspective um, on the stimulus and the response take priority and form the, the fundamentals of the of the model. Whereas from PCT, it's all about building the model from the inside of the organism, taking the input, for example, in, the, in a classic um, kind of fly study, trying to understand what the fly perceives going into its um, its sensory cells, its vision, rather than taking the observer's view and coding that as the stimulus. And again, it's it's one of those unquestioned assumptions that permeates uh, the literature uh, in in neuroscience. Um, and it takes someone with Henry's um, experience and some of his most classic recent experiments to, to demonstrate that, um, that flaw really, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 
And it's really interesting to me uh, that uh, while Henry, in, in some ways, I, I think it's safe to say, is not a fan of sort of classic cybernetics, there's a link between what he's talking about and second order cybernetics in that the the elu- the, the mistake of of relying on the observer's um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. understanding of that uh, and 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 the fact that we need to think about the observer's world uh, going all the way back to sort of the umwelt of von Uxel. Absolutely. And- Right, so that's uh, yeah, that's a that's a key key link between them. Yeah, I think. and and PCT makes this really smooth link between those um, those leaders within ethology, um, like Umwelt, and an experimental methodology. Um, and I think sometimes, and it's certainly the case in my field, the kind of phenomenological side of psychology is almost kind of taken away from its quantitative precision as though the two are separate only the 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 kind of the um, observer of an experiment can use precise quantitative methods whereas the mm. phenomenologist the person describing phenomenology has to rely on kind of introspective description and that's just not the case mm. you can build a, a quantitatively precise study from the perspective of of the person or the organism that you're that you're studying, and that in a sense is the is the point of PCT, and it's the elegance of the kind of studies that Rick and 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 Henry have done. Terrific, thank you. Yeah, great. We'll move on to the third person you've mentioned as a kind of the the, the pure pure PCT sort of um, advocates and and people are sort of articulating that to Richard Kennaway with the mm. chapter, When Causation mm. Does Not Imply Correlation, Robust Violations of the Faithfulness Axiom. Yeah. I mean, I was I was looking at Richard's uh, chapter again recently, and, you know, I think if a, if a chapter like, like his had been published to uh, the physical sciences, it would be met with a kind of um, a, a reversal of current theory because you know, physicists are used to, to mathematical arguments and cases being made through the, through the, through the precision of, of, um, of the mathematical um, demonstrations. Um, but in psychology and neuroscience, one can make a, a very robust mathematical argument and then it can be just kind of considered as a perspective on the, uh, the this research area, but actually, um, and R- Richard puts this very succinctly in the chapter. He says the very function of a control system is to actively destroy the data that current current techniques of causal analysis work from, <laughs> um, and that's because a control system um, is is constantly striving to remove the causal effects of disturbances upon the variables that it that it cherishes that it's controlling and so it keeps a variable very close to its desired state reducing its variation sometimes to zero and so the chances of getting anything to correlate with that variable because it's so well controlled become um, extremely hard as well but the whole system is a causal loop that is through its the uh, the connections the causal connections between its elements because they're arranged in a 
in a closed loop that is keeping some variable tightly controlled, you're not going to you're not going to find evidence of that causal system by looking at mm-hmm. correlations. And so this whole assumption within um, neuroscience, within psychology, um, that we're looking for correlations between X and Y, and that's going to give us some insight as to where the causal mechanisms might be, even though it won't fully explain it, um, is, a, is a false assumption. You can find causal systems that, that defy uh, correlations between elements that we know are connected because you've built a model that replicates it and at the same time um, have uh, correlations between elements that aren't connected. The classic example, it's very simple really, is imagine two people, person A and person B, they're both pointing at each other. Person A's goal is to keep their finger always um, right next to uh, person B's finger. So when person B moves their finger randomly, person A just has to track their finger as tightly as possible. Okay. Now, if this is done really well, then that distance between the two fingers uh, remains at zero. But it's that distance that is being controlled that is Mm -hmm. the reference point uh, in person A's head. And yet the correlation is between the two people's movements. But there's no direct connection between the two people. They're, they're one person trying to track the other. Um, mm. That other person doesn't actually influence that person's um, finger movement. It's only because person A has selected their own goal of trying to track person B that the two finger movements are even related to one another. There's no causal relationship between person A and person B. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and we do a lot of demonstrations of my training PCT to, uh, to, to show this case. Um, but it's quite, it always strikes me as, it always, it, I don't know if troubles the word, but perplexes me that, that such demonstrations of the insufficiency of simple sort of linear causal um, models don't go the full way and um, help people to realize that we really need to move on in terms of our methodologies and our assumptions about the nature of life. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's a kind of a sunk costs kind of thing. It's like Mm, mm. there's too much to overturn now. We've invested too much. We've gone too far. There's no turning back. And there's absolutely a theory behind that that PCT can lend itself to. Absolutely. (laughs) But that is exactly, that is the nature of change. And that's all we'll come to method of levels later. But there's nearly always sunk costs uh, involved in, in making changes to to systems, to goals that people have invested long time in, even though, even if they create conflict, even if they yeah. um, undermine one's overarching goal, you know, for scientific inquiry. Well, I think many of us can identify, particularly in our undergraduate years, with being that person at a party who gets into an argument and takes one position, and then at a certain point you realize your argument is crumbling, but you're, you're damned if you're going <laughs> to give it up. <laughs> Hopefully we've outgrown that by the time we're, uh, you know, you know, actually in academia, but maybe not. <laughs> I doubt um, it. I doubt yeah. it. Yeah. Great. Um, let's move on to section B now, which is a, a group of chapters uh, under the heading Models of Brain and Behavior. 
Mm. And the first is unraveling the dynamics of dyadic interactions, yeah. perceptual control in animal contests. So he says, this is going back to the connection with ethology. Uh, this is both by Sergio M. Pellis and Heather C. Bell. Yeah. So now we're into the domain of what you can do once you know PCT in these different areas, rather than in the first three chapters, really demonstrating the validity of, of PCT. And what, what Sergio has done with PCT and more recently with, with um, Heather's work is, you know, it's, it's tremendous. So he actually, he actually discovered um, a form of coding animal behavior um, through a researcher who had understood cybernetics, applied it to dance moves, um, mm. and then it became a method of coding for animal contests. I love and, that. I love that so yeah, much. That's yeah, so yeah. elegant. It all goes round, doesn't it? It all comes yeah. round. Um, and Heather and Sergio in that chapter have shown that across the animal kingdom, you find that um, the, the complexities of body movements between two animals in, in contest, often rivalry or fights, um, can be explained by much more simple rules than other theories would tend to, to uh, put forward, namely that certain variables are being controlled by, by either or both animals. And one of those is to get um, uh, close, for example, get your teeth close to the nape of the other animal because that shows you're you're dominant to it and all this rolling around and sort of what looks like maybe certain strategies off uh, it's argued is really a, the emergent um, process whereby the animal is trying to keep that distance to the other animal despite what its rival is doing to prevent it and you can mm. see this in all kinds of contests in animals and obviously in humans, in, not just in dance, obviously, but in sport. Um, there are many examples of, of this. And, and I've gone on to, to do some work on uh, predator-prey relationships, uh, sort of inspired by, by Sergio's work. Um, and uh, yeah, I met Sergio and, and Heather um, when they came over for one of our international conferences. And you know, it's just fabulous uh, what they what they've been doing? Um, there's another colleague, Louise Barrett, who is a really helpful reviewer uh, for this um, chapter. Uh, and so I think PCT and ethology can really work together uh, very well. And I think the most inspiring element is the fact that some of these, if you like, cybernetic rules apply across widely different species. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're real principles of life rather than which is, again, you know, I, I look to um, other areas of science and Charles Darwin's approach to the complexities of all the different life forms was to say, I know what, I'm going to try and identify some basic principles and algorithms that can explain change over generations in all life, irrespective of what species it is. Mm -hmm. That's what PCT is. It's an attempt to try and find the underlying principles of all behavior across all species. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's obviously going to be refinements and ramifications of that for different species and different contexts. But those basic principles um, run, run through this book and run through the, the PCT research. 
Yeah, and if you go right back to to you know Wiener's uh, you know seminal book in cybernetics, of course, the subtitle "Communication and Control in the Animal and the Machine." He back then even he was not just speaking about mm. about humans and you know references to the famous imprinting uh, stuff, Conrad Lorenz, right? And the ducks would maintain that distance, mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Has um, the influence of animal behavior has been with us in these mm. studies uh, for a long, long time. Yeah, and, and, and of course, as that interfaces with kind of attachment theory um, mm. and some of the neuroscience work on fundamental emotions, you know, it becomes really critical. Well, great. So now we move on to Erling O. Jorgensen's multi-chapter uh, piece mm. called How the Brain Gets a Roaring Campfire. And the first part, uh, chapter six in the book, is structuring for perceptual results. Yeah. So Erling actually has a third chapter, which I think is open access. He he wrote reams and reams for this book. So part of the, the job was to, to keep it in a, a manageable length. And some of the extended versions are on the kind of supplementary materials and I wasn't aware of Erling's work before um, talking to Alice about um, you know the book in the first place um, but I, you know I, I liaised with him and he shared with me his, his um, ideas and it just seems so important and this is a, an, a theme that I'm coming back to in the in my conference talk in September and it, it, I touched upon it in my chapter in this book which is there is so much hard work and data out there that other researchers have done um, across neuroscience, across all kinds of disciplines. Um, and yes, it's not been done with the um, perspective of PCT, and, and that draws the kind of criticisms that, that Henry and Rick will put to them. But at the same time, we have to remind ourselves, when Bill wrote his key book in 73 he he drew upon facts and figures and data of the neuroscience of the time um and he used those as examples and he used those to 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 show how the theory panned out and um this is what erling does he he takes two different um hugely uh detailed expositions one of the the layers of uh, the neocortex um, involved in in memory and hierarchical memory um, and the other in terms of the uh, visual system and the again the hierarchical um, abstraction of different visual codes um, and he he kind of he reinterprets them within the frames of PCT. Now, this could be thought of as a kind of a, a magpie-like appropriation of other people's work, but the way that Erling writes it clearly shows that's not the case. He mm-hmm. he he uses the metaphor of a campfire to illustrate all these levels and to have a kind of um it, it needs this a kind of a a vivid theme that brings these um theories and quite a lot of neuroanatomical detail uh to life and he kind of reminds the reader in every page really about how a pct perspective would consider this data and how it 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 makes it different what it means so classically 
um, in that um, chapter six, um, you know, the, the, the incredible work that, that Jeff Hawkins has done on the neuroscience of, of intelligence, um, it, despite all its complexities, it's still framed in this almost monotonous way of that current cognitive science sees the brain as, a, as a, some kind of prediction machine. And that theme comes through. And, and, but there are glimpses within that description that, that Jeff Hawkins talks about predri- prediction, not as prediction, but as, as desires, as, as um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, desired perceptions, as wanted inputs, mm-hmm. um, rather than as um, kind of things that will happen. You know, yeah. as the classic meaning of, of prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, I've had lots of conversations with the many um, researchers in this field that kind of talk about the, the meaning of words. And, and I think it's a fair point. You know, the word control has many meanings, and yet PCT takes a specific meaning of it. The word prediction has many meanings, and yet cognitive science and for example predictive coding or free energy principle take a specific meaning of it um but in in my view when that meaning actually comes so close to control of input being a simpler and more accurate way of describing it then then that's the way it should be and and that's what erling does within this chapter he he shows that um control of input makes um, clear sense in describing the the functions of these uh, neural systems at, at various um, levels. And he also shows the interesting parallels between the way that memory was described within uh, Bill's uh, 73 book and the specific levels of perception that, that Bill described as having par- many parallels within uh, what's in that uh, neuroscience literature, but of course, mm-hmm. PCT wasn't ever wasn't exhaustive and isn't exhaustive in terms of those different codes of perception. And so, um, I think kind of what you're saying right at the beginning, um, Erling's chapter gives some ideas about some other avenues regarding the types of uh, perceptions that um, might be controlled by the brain that are there within the sort of classic um, cognitive literature, um, but would be quite um, beneficial to, to, to explore within PCT. Yeah. And, and this work, Erling's work is on my mind as I'm, I'm currently reading a, a book about uh, Greek uh, dramas. I'm getting prepared to, to direct some of my students in, uh, in, a, in some adaptations of, of classical tragedy and um, it's one of the it's it's a book that's part of the still ongoing co- so called cognitive turn in theater studies, and it's leaning heavily into Andy Clark, and so it's talking about you know the top down predictive meets the bottom up perceptive, and I just keep thinking PCT would probably deal with this in a in a simpler fashion. Um, mm. So yeah, the the way the ways it can clarify and and make the kinds of things that Andy Clark and others are 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 saying in an even more sort of parsimonious fashion. I yeah. think is really important. It's hard because cognition and motivation have been divided from from one another since 
time began essentially so it's since empirical yes. psychology began and it's very hard for people to get out of that mindset to think that they could be entwined and part of the same closed system um, mm-hmm. but that's pct it's basically seeing cognition and motivation not as separate but as um you know part of the same unit part of the same understanding of of life and it and it means that therapeutically and with interventions that we make we're so aware of the agency of the other person that their needs their wants their need to be in control and to feel safe rather than piling in with some way of trying to modify their beliefs or or make cognitive change before we've even really thought about well why are they here what do they want you know being primary and fundamental to to living living well yeah should we jump ahead to franz's chapter yeah okay so uh the phylogeny ontogeny causation and function of regression periods explained by reorganizations of the hierarchy of perceptual Mm. control systems and of course reorganization continues to be one of the areas where people are that that i think most pct folks working with pct admit continues to need the most development and uh this this definitely um moves well in that direction it's true i mean and it's sorry franz now i'm of dutch heritage but i still can't claim that i know how to pronounce his last name so i'm going to leave it to you Ploy, yeah, Franz Ploy. Okay. Oh, yeah. Franz. I mean, it's so it's so interesting. Uh, so many of the people in this book are both really lovely people and have got. You kind of you. you I just I just am deeply in awe at their their knowledge and their understanding and just the the way they've engaged with nature to do their work like mm. like with Sergio and Heather but but with Franz again it's the the intensive work that he did with free living uh, chimpanzees and their infants and then the work that he did with 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 human infants with which ended up being a a best-selling parenting book the wonder the wonder weeks mm. mm-hmm. uh, and this chapter is just a catalog of of his work the experimental work alongside that and the kind of the the big ideas around um evolution and you know phylogeny it's it's um it's incredible but it's 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 a it's a a really good reference point that i use when i'm explaining pct to people to um remind them how we developed to control things in the way we do. And it wasn't always this way. And, you know, when we were first born, things were very unstructured and random. And you can see that in, in you know, young infants. And over time, in it's, it appears in stages, um, a young infant learns to see the world in new ways. And then because it can perceive the world in new ways, bring about change, control, aspects of the environment to to um to achieve that 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 perception which can start as simple as a as working working its way up a temperature gradient to be able to suckle from its mother and becomes you know as complex as you know around forming uh, the kind of attachments and relationships um into adulthood um and so it's just it's fantastic the way that and, and that Franz engaged with PCT 
again, he found out it through neuroscience. Um, a, uh, a senior researcher called Lex Kools, again from the Netherlands, um, ex- explained it to him. And again, like most people with PCT, you don't look back. He's just he's just <laughs> taken it and and shown what potential it can provide in terms of understanding infant development, but also, and we're starting to to see this now in the book, building interventions and his intervention about helping helping new parents to realize that 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 all children go through difficult times um and often these are around where they are going through a developmental shift and when you're going through one of those you're you you you're unable to control um the world in the way you want to be um skills are lost kids at that age uh, get very um Franz calls it cranky, distressed. They mm-hmm. need their parents more, and um, Wonder Weeks helps explain that to parents and helps them realise that this is a process they're going through. You just need to be there for them. And the wonderful thing is, when they're through it, they get to the new level and they develop all these new skills that they never had before. So it's a one. It's one of those other. It's another really kind of positivistic aspect of PCT when you can see this kind of trajectory for it for it through infancy um, mm-hmm. and the way it's been used in a very accessible way for parents yeah that's beautiful wonderful so we move on now to section c which is the section that given my own work uh, not just you know with actors and directors in the conventional way but um my own work working in uh conflict within organizations from a pct perspective mm-hmm. section c is collective control and communication uh, sorry, uh, yes, there's collective control and communication. And we start mm-hmm. with a chapter I referenced already, Kent McClellan's chapter, Social Structure and Control, Perceptual Control Theory and the Science of Sociology. Yeah, the wonderful thing about these three chapters is that Kent, Bruce and Martin all work together, sharing mm-hmm. early scripts with each other. And they were they were actually developing and refining refining definitions of terms as they yes. were writing these chapters it was it was amazing to see it unfold yeah it's very powerful it's yeah. very powerful the yeah. things they've developed together it's really a blockbuster uh section yeah. of the book for yeah. me yeah and kent was writing a book at the same time there's a book out there called stability that's not published that builds on these ideas mm. so this chapter really is a condensed version of that um i've met kent a number of times and he came to uh manchester about about 10 years ago now to do some teaching for us and you know that's the other thing of what i'm saying about everyone everyone in this field is so generous with their time and at the same time just intellectual heavyweights but often in a minority sense <laughs> in their own field because most other people are doing something very different in their field and that's clearly the case for Kent, who uses this very kind of mathematically precise theory drawn from engineering to work with sociology. Um, that said, there have been theories within sociology, like identity control theory, that have, have basically based on PCT. Um, and Kent's done his bit to, to push that, that forward. Um, so, uh, I mean, Kent's contributed a lot to PCT, including the name perceptual control theory. Um, but the concept 
classically that he's contributed is the notion of collective control. Um, and he's kind of explored the, the conditions, the, the limitations and the, um, uh, the consequences of people working to dick together to control their own perceptions. So even though, according to the theory, we're only controlling our own perception of what's out there in the world, in the physical world, we can work together to build things in the world, as we see around us, of course, um, through just controlling our own perception of it. And he has a kind of a classic example of like three people trying to keep uh, a post still in the ground. And they've all got different perceptions of that post from their own point of view but and and they're trying to keep it vertical as they perceive it using their reference of what vertical is and even though they're coming from different angles and they're moving they've got different bodies and what have you they are constantly working together to keep that that uh post still and obviously we see this in in every sphere of life People don't necessarily all have a have a plan of how they're going to do things. They have a plan of what they want. And then when they get to the job, they work together and they compensate for each other. And they manage things in the moment to, um, to create things out there in the world. And actually, these things out there in the world are often things that facilitate our control in themselves. Mm-hmm. But most obviously, the the computer and mobile phones and what have you, but you know, our, you know, and, and clearly things like roads and you know, yeah, transit uh, systems, transit systems, etc., etc. You, you, you can obviously list so many, um, but it's a way of framing those aspects of our environment, not as a, a weirdly some kind of stimulus that triggers our behaviour. How would that ever work? But as things that we've created to to meet our goals, to allow us to get the experiences we want to experience. So we use these tools, these devices as feedback paths to get to see the things we want to see, to create the art we want to create, to say the words we want to say, to compose the music we want to compose and hear, etc. So there's an open playing field, really, and Kent's populated it in this chapter. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really brilliant and is already having a huge influence on, on the stuff that I'm thinking about, you know, conceiving of the workplace in that new, in that way, you know, mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a, as a set of ideally enabling feedback paths, but where are those paths blocked or where are they mm-hmm. a- accessible to one person, but creating a blockage or a disturbance for another. And uh, it's a really powerful yeah. way. Even just think of entirely a, a society, you know, as, as the structure of feedback pathways. Uh, mm-hmm. That are more accessible to some than others uh, is is mm-hmm. a powerful mm-hmm. uh, way of moving. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And so, as you mentioned, the um, subsequent chapters th- that were written in 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 cooperation together. So we've got mm-hmm. Martin Taylor uh, next with perceptual control in cooperative interaction. Who again, as you say, picks up some of the language and uh, the definition of terms that uh, w- is first laid out in Kent's chapter. And again, Martin a huge intellectual heavyweight i mean it's unbelievable what he's written in the level and he just illustrates everything with a new diagram he must have done thousands um again martin's written um a book that is 
you know, the wider extensionist chapter that is marvelously detailed and it describes things like, you know, the nature of money and how that evolved, you know, mm. you know, it's, it's incredible. Um, and it, and Martin's got this background within um, kind of human inf- uh, human machine interface in, in uh, defense systems. He's interested in how, people work not just together to control the same thing but they work in sort of kind of lines of control in kind of um if you like subordinate and uh kind of in the kind of relationships where people do what other people ask them to do or they help one another or they take on information from what other people have said and engage in what he defines as protocols kind of systems of interaction that have a known, if you like, structure to them, like a handshake, um, like uh, the um, protocol when you um, engage as a student in a in a in a, um, in a lecture, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's it's an it's an example of where you take the principles of the theory and you just observe what they look like in a in a complex social context where people are um they control their own perception but they're doing that through the use of someone else who's controlling some other experience you know it's something as simple as saying can you pass the salt you know i'm using the uh perceptual apparatus of another person to to find the salt and give it to me so they become part of my feedback path to get Mm -hmm. what i need um and obviously, once you get two, three, four people in the interaction, the, the potential for those routes becomes very complex. That probably puts off most authors, but but <laughs> um, but Martin just pans them out and illustrates the implications. Yeah, it's again, it's it's incredibly uh, powerful, and and and, and the, as I say, just all these three of these chapters have got me thinking about the nature of work. In a in a in a in a, mm. in a new mm. way that uh, opens up, and we up. come to work again later, don't we, with Jeff Vancouver's? Yeah. yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. Of course, yeah. So to finish off this sort of tr- this trilogy of papers, we've got Bruce Nevin's language yeah. and thought as control of perception. Again, again, it's just it's just incredible the range that Bruce covers from the very physical kind of way that a phoneme is pronounced, right through to the kind of high level meaning that we need in order to understand the the purpose of any linguistic statements for it for that communication to have any meaning to us and again peppered with diagrams to illustrate um how in the spirit of pct you know we explain things by showing how they work we don't just use our words and also i could never do justice to this in this interview but there's some mm-hmm. fabulous ways that um bruce has illustrated the different facets of language he's even got a section there on on the development of language and that helps to understand the hierarchical nature of language that actually you can parse it out into a hierarchy um, that again um has very close parallels to the hierarchy of of pct for for obvious reasons um you know i think that Understanding language is a a real challenge for for PCT because 
PCT lends itself most easily to kind of continuous control, to to kind of skill and kind of motor um, mm-hmm. experiences, um, whereas language has this kind of logical organized and propositional structure to it you know symbolic structure to it now bill was well aware of this and he talked about the use of of language and he had conversations with phil runkle about it um but as far as i know bruce is the first to really write extensively about how to understand language within pct yeah and it's a huge it's a huge contribution because i think that it, it that could be one place where those who still want to resist pct yeah. the would ask the question well what about language yeah. and and bruce is uh is is really um clarifying um and again demonstrating the the power of the of the theory it's this is one of those examples where it's like you know both cyberneticians those who call themselves cyberneticians and those who are call themselves perceptual control theorists can get accused of being kind of wild-eyed evangelists, uh, you know, because they've got a theory of everything. But, you know, when you look at this book, I mean, the, 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 the explanatory power across all of these domains, I mean, it really is convincing, I think. So, yeah, um, I think that's part of, you know, what convinced me about PCT. And I, I developed the site PCTweb.org to illustrate that, that if a theory is correct about behavior the nature of behavior it's going to be validated across every discipline of the social and life sciences it's not mm-hmm. just going to be true within one subset of psychology even if within that one subset of psychology the the largest study with the biggest sample size and the robust most robust experiment is done um there's i think there's more to be said for finding convergence of the same principles coming up again and again and again from multiple perspectives um you know and that's as i say that's illustrated in this book yeah absolutely and now we get into section d applications and of course yeah thank you for reminding me that this chapter that goes directly into the into the nature of work uh jeffrey b vancouver's chapter perceptions of control theory in industrial organizational psychology disturbances and counter disturbances so yeah so jeff vancouver um was an author that i really wanted to um contribute to this book um he his work is within the um industrial psychology and organizational psychology domain but actually if you look at his research it really speaks to social psychology uh, and personality psychology it's actually got very wide um implications um and some of some of uh, jeff's papers have been actually some of the most well-cited papers that have used uh, perceptual control theory um he wrote a chapter, um, sorry, a review um, in '96 covering uh, the concepts of, of goals in psychology. And it was a kind of a huge overview of goal constructs. But if you read that review, it's underpinned by, by PCT. Mm. Um, and he has been one person who's really pushed forward the need for computational modeling as opposed to some of the. Um, group statistics uh, that I mentioned earlier within uh, psychology as being um, almost a necessary stage in 
validating a theory and he's and he's done it within a field social psychology that it's quite hard to build those computational models compared to say um you know motor control um uh robotic models for example um and and again it's it's deeply impressive the kind of um detail within which he's done computational modeling using um using pct this chapter is has got a more personal touch to it it's basically explaining his kind of battle if you like with the more uh traditional um largely cognitive and and behavioral social psychologists um and wrangling over some precious constructs like uh, self-efficacy theory for example or even the nature of goals um and he's still he's still kind of fighting that fight and and attempting to explain um you know the nature of a goal as a control of input and the, the necessity just like what i said earlier with rick kenaway's work of having to do computational models to do proper scientific testing of living systems um and so again it's it was a, a real privilege to have uh, jeff's chapter in here mm-hmm um, and then we move to the method of levels, which of course is uh, your your um, domain of application. Uh, and you've written this chapter uh, with David M. Goldstein. We've only got a few minutes left and, and we won't be able to get into MOL as in-depth as we'd like, but I, I turned people to our pre- my previous interview with Warren about uh, a book out that came out with Rutledge entirely about uh, doing the method of levels. But what do you want to say about what your, your goals were for this particular chapter in the context of this, uh, this handbook? Yeah, yeah so originally, um, both David Goldstein and Tim Carey were going to write separate chapters in the book. Um, but Tim didn't write his chapter, so um, I... Um, helped David put his chapter together and David's in there because Bill has had a long-standing kind of working relationship with David um, and they um, wrote quite a a bit on this PCT way of understanding psychology there's a book called the introduction to modern control theory um, that um, David Goldstein and a number of others uh, worked on to really brings um pct into the psychology mainstream um and david goldstein was aware of bill's method of levels many decades ago so he was he was around when when bill was first sharing um his his method with others um the purpose of this chapter is just to explain that what method of levels is how it was developed and what the current evidence is for it um and in doing so we've just we basically describe how tim carey um worked with bill powers in the 1990s to create method of levels into an actual therapy or a counseling method and it brings us up to date in, as in terms of where method levels is now mm-hmm Great, and again, I, I turned people to our my previous interview with uh, with yeah. Warren on the method of levels. That's a good idea. Um, yeah. Well, we're running short on time. Unfortunately, we won't be able to to talk in depth about each author, but I do want to mention uh, Rupert Young's great chapter about uh, robotics in the real world, perceptual control theory approach, and and Rupert's uh, PCT approach to robotics, very very different from uh, other sort of oh, mainstream yeah. approaches to robotics. It's incredible, extraordinary. 
And he's led um, the way, and, and now people like Henry Yin are, uh, are following suit and building robots to to test and demonstrate PCT. And yeah. Rupert again just takes no prisoners. He just he yeah. just knows PCT, and he just builds robots according to that to, yeah. to PCT. He's got his own company, um, and he's built dozens of robots that you can see on YouTube that, that are based on the principles. And in this chapter, he's really provided that data. In a, in a depth that um, yeah. you maybe don't see in some of his other work. Yeah. I hope Rupert continues uh, or is able to, to get the kind of support his work deserves because he's continued to sort of swim against the mainstream in, yeah, uh, yeah. in robotics in a yeah. way that is yeah. really yeah. remarkable and deserves, uh, deserves uh, uh, support. Yeah. Um, and then Roger K. Moore's PCT and Beyond – Toward a computational yep. framework for intelligent communicative systems. Yeah, and Rogers taught PCT um, in Sheffield for, I think it's a, well over a decade now. He's, you know, he clearly sees the advantages of PCT. Um, he's come into it in a, a very different way to Rupert at quite a high level in terms of how we would build artificial systems to understand language but to truly understand language, not just to process mm. um, language in a kind of big data way that we see through machine learning, but instead through um, modeling the intentions of the, um, the conversation partner. And so he's kind of built this hypothetical system of, of, of uh, language recognition that would use that process that he's never built in real life yet, but he has kind of... Sh- demonstrated sort of um robotic examples um so it's a vision but i think it's a vision that um is 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 realistic in the next 10 20 years Mm -hmm. so i i love the way that rupert's work and rogers and and of course others too is 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 pointing the way to which pct can create new opportunities and a whole new conception of what artificial intelligence might be yeah Um, yeah and again, harkens it. back to to uh, efforts back in in earlier days of cybernetics as well, with um, um, Heinz von Furster's biological computer laboratory that was much more interested in the analog than the digital. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, there's these alternate alternate methods of artificial intelligence um, yeah. undergirded yeah. by PCT are in yeah. the works. Yeah, and the fascinating thing: the first chapter of of Bill's 1973 book is just basically analog computing it's telling you the building blocks that he sees of the brain that neurons can differentiate they can integrate they can sum they can subtract um mm-hmm. these are parallel these are analogous within analog computing yeah it's, yeah absolutely you, you just knew that yes an idea whose time has come again it seems hopefully. well well Maybe now, maybe in another hundred years. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> well, this has been great. Thank you for uh, doing the uh, exhaustive work of taking us yeah. on a guided tour through this. This Can I very do a d- little promotion for my final chapter. Yeah, that's what I mean. Our 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 question is always, "What's next?" Yeah. Well, I, mean, I know the answer to that. Was there something else yeah. you wanted to mention too? Well, the, the final chapter is kind of trying to lay the record straight about PCT in terms of how it's been used in other theories, how it's influenced them, or how it's been used across different domains, and how it's different from other theories. Um, And it also addresses some of the criticisms about PCT um, that are often 
are pitched at kind of feedback control systems in and of themselves. But it also, towards the last few pages, kind of puts out there where there's research and there's areas that haven't even been touched upon by these amazing kind of dozen or so chapters of this book. Um, part of that is is work that I'm going forward with, and part of it is work that's going to come into volume two. So, you know, Elsevier have, have um, kindly um, put the finances behind a second interdisciplinary handbook um, with a whole new set of authors. Um, and this time I've selected them from people that have maybe been using PCT in more, more recent years, many of them, um, but have used it in much, much more divergent areas, uh, mm-hmm. in education, in uh, philosophy, um, your own work in, in theatre, um, in design, building design. It's, it's stunningly diverse. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a second volume to show that how diverse the applications uh, can be of PCT. Well, I'll tell you, it's a great, great honor to be involved in that project and uh, super excited to be working with you and, and the other great authors uh, on it to, uh, to bring that to fruition and continue to carry forward this work and, and, and continue to get it known amongst the public. But a huge thank you to you, Warren, for being uh, such a great standard bearer for uh, PCT, for the method of levels and for the whole community. And a huge thanks for being here with us again to uh, to take us through this book and uh, set the stage for the follow-up volume coming soon. No problem. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, where I've been talking to Warren Mansell about the Interdisciplinary Handbook of Perceptual Control Theory. Thanks very much. <laughs>